Good morning again. Good seeing all of you. Welcome to those of you online to Calvary Chapel Richmond. If you're visiting, we're glad to have you here this morning. I told the first service, uh, we had a great crowd at the 830 service. That 830 service just keeps growing. And um, But I told them, you know, if you're visiting, we're not perfect here, but we try and be authentic and following Jesus and loving one another. So uh, if you're visiting, we're glad to have you. Hope you feel welcome. Uh, we'd love to, if you're looking for a church home, we'd love you to find it here, uh, to grow in grace here. But um, a couple of things as we get into, before we get into um, uh, our study this morning in Acts chapter 11. It's one hair here, it's my, my eyelash. But uh, before I uh, get into Acts chapter 11, a couple of quick things. Uh, first off, uh, this Wednesday night, uh, I will launch the book of Joshua. So uh, it's been, uh, we finished um, uh, the series through the Psalms. So this will be the book of Joshua, Receiving Promises and Taking Courage is the title of the series. And uh, we'll get into ja chapter one this Wednesday. Looking forward to it. This past Wednesday, by the way, was our sixth straight Wednesday in prayer. So all of January plus the first Wednesday of each month. And uh, it was a beautiful powerful night. Uh, by the end of the uh, prayer service, we had, the altar was packed. I mean, we had a, a lot of people here for a Wednesday night, and the altar was packed with people wanting to be prayed over uh, for the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, healing, and so uh, we just had a, a wonderful anointed time uh, this past Wednesday. But this Wednesday, we'll, we'll uh, be back in a new study, and then uh, the first Wednesday in March we'll have another prayer night, so just kind of keep that in mind. So that uh, that is what's coming up this Wednesday, and at this moment, I'm going to invite up just a second here, we have a baby dedication today, uh, yeah, the, it will be, we have the zoo, uh, we have the Rios family coming up, uh, they're here now, this is the Rios family, this is Ralph and Zuner, and this is Elizabeth Shalom. That's her middle name. I mean, this makes your service, doesn't it? You know. Uh, hey, you blowing kisses to people? That's really nice. She's a natural, so. But the Rios family—they came uh, to Virginia. What? Two years ago now? Uh, not even? A year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, they came up to Virginia from Miami, Fort Lauderdale. So me and my wife, uh, they have a special place for in our hearts. Uh, I'm not originally from Miami, but me and my wife both went to college in Miami. We got saved in, in Miami, and you guys were at Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, as we were. So we, uh, we're just uh, thankful to have you guys here. And, and Elizabeth, is she not adorable? She is 17 months old. 17 months old, and so we are going to dedicate her to the Lord, and <laughs> real quick, um, in the Bible, uh, you know the, the story of Samuel, Hannah, Hannah takes little Samuel, and she dedicates him to the Lord. Now, we're not, we don't leave our kids at the temple anymore and, and come back and get them when they're adults or anything like that, but the principle, like baby Moses, his parents dedicate, they put, that, put him in that little ark to, to cover him, to protect him. And Samuel was dedicated to the Lord, 
And that's what we're doing. Uh, Elizabeth still has to, on her own, choose to follow Jesus, and we pray that she will. And, that, and you're praying with us today that, that she will. So that's what a dedication is. Uh, we believe that we're saying, Lord, you gave this beautiful little girl to Ralph and to Zuner, and so they are giving her back to Jesus and training her up, and that she will follow the Lord uh, in her adult years. So we, we just want to uh, just pray over her and dedicate her to the Lord just as little Samuel was and that's what this is all about. It's not a christening or anything like that. It's just saying, Lord, we thank you for her, and now we just want to put her life in your hands. Does that sound good? So we want to pray over her. You want to give? Can I, I've held you many times. But today, <laughs> today's not going to be one of them. But that's okay. I, I told her parents last week, I said, if she won't come, you guys just hold her, and we'll pray. And so let's see if, let's see. There we go. All right, we'll lay hands on you guys. She feels safer that way. Yeah. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for Elizabeth Shalom. We thank you for her little life, her 17 months, and just the uh, joy that she has brought to Ralph and Zuner, and even the joy to many of us, even those that uh, are here today have seen uh, just the beauty of a little child. And Lord, uh, she's such a precious little girl, and we're so thankful that you've given her to this uh, to this couple, and Lord, that they are raising her to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And we pray that as young as possible, Lord, she will see that you and you alone are her Lord and her Savior, and she'll give her heart and life to you. We pray that she will follow you all the days of her life, and Lord, that she'll avoid many uh, situations that uh, could be avoided by young people today if they would just come to you at a young age, like little Samuel did, like Moses did, like Daniel did. And we just pray your blessing upon Ralph and uh, Zuner as they train her, give them wisdom, give them strength, give them understanding, and just bless them as a family and a couple. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, she's praying with us. Congratulations. Bye. Isn't that great? <laughs> like the sound of music. So long, farewell. She's like, uh, <laughs> now she must go to bed, you know. Now, I've held her many times, but th this was a new scene for her. She's like, all right, uh, I'm staying close to mom and dad in this, and I totally understand that. Um, but she did blow you all a lot of kisses, so... <laughs> Uh, last thing we want to do before we get into God's Word, we want to pray uh, for revival as we've been praying for a long time. Like, like all of you, I would hope, I love this nation, I love the freedoms that we currently have, which could be gone if we completely abandon God, uh, by the way. So we have them today. Uh, the freedoms we have are really because of what we see in the Scriptures, that we believe that God has given a free will choice, and so... We're thankful for that, but uh, our nation needs a revival. It uh, needs a great awakening, I should say. The church needs a revival. We have many churches that have moved away from teaching the whole counsel of God, and they really are there just to kind of entertain people for uh, an hour or even less on a Sunday. And uh, our nation needs the undiluted gospel and from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we need, in this church, we, we want to draw closer and closer to Jesus. We want to be revived in our minds and our spirits and uh, walk with the Lord in a closer way. And so we're going to pray. If uh, It's not easy in the second service, uh, but if you're able to get on your knees for about 30 seconds of silence, please join us. If you can't, that's fine. Just sit there where you're at. Uh, if your knees aren't good, if your doctor says, bad idea, that's fine. Just stay seated. 
and we will pray about 30 seconds of silence, then I'll pray for revival. And I'm praying for the nation of Chile today as we pray for one country every week. Let's pray. Father, we count it a privilege to bow before you. We know that when we meet you face to face, our automatic response, we see it uh, when John fell at your feet at the Lord's day, Lord, when on the Lord's day, when he was in the spirit, Lord, we know that when we see you face to face, we will fall at your feet. We'll even cast our crowns at your feet. And so we bow before you now as we will uh, in eternity, Lord, because you are our gracious God and Savior. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for your holiness, Lord, which we don't have apart from you. We thank you for salvation, Lord. We ask that even this morning you would restore to each and every person here the joy of their salvation. Lord, we pray that you do a purifying work. Even if we know you, Lord, that you would even now cleanse us from every sin, every transgression, even things that we can't see as the psalmist says are secret faults. We lay aside every sin and every weight, Lord. We want to see Revival not only in this church, not only in us individually, not only in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, but Lord, in every church in this city, in this state, in this nation, Lord, we pray that wherever the word of God is taught, that you would revive and pour out your power on the preaching of the gospel. And Lord, where pulpits have stopped preaching the gospel, there would be repentance for that. Where they've stopped teaching the whole counsel of God, where we've called, where we've refused to call what sin is sin, Lord, there'd be repentance for that, Lord. We pray that there, you would. Uh, just stir uh, the pulpits and pews of this nation, Lord, that, the, that revival would begin in the house of God and the people of God. Judgment starts in the house of God. Lord, we pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray for those uh, that in positions of power and those who have no power, that they would turn from the se- themselves, their own idols, their, their own uh, little gods that they have made for themselves, the sins, the bondages that we see so many in. We pray there'd be a turning from that, a repentance and uh, Lord, many, many coming to Christ and salvations. We pray for many revivals, even representing this church. Uh, I'm sorry, many prodigals, Lord, even in this church, that they would come home and that they would be saved. Lord, we pray that this would be the year that many prodigals would return to you and uh, Lord, be found uh, completely changed, completely transformed. We pray for the nation of Chile, Lord. We know that you love the Chilean people. We thank you for the churches that are there uh, that are preaching the truth. We pray that they would grow and they would multiply. They also would receive an outpouring of an awakening, a revival in that nation and around the world. And we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in so many places, Lord. We pray that you would lift them up, heal them, deliver them, strengthen them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. And if you have your Bibles... Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Picking up with where we left off, we finished the 10th chapter. If you're visiting, we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts. So starting with verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea 
heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You could put, how dare you, in parentheses there. But Peter explained to them, in order, from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, the six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you your words, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Let's pray again. Father, we humbly bow before you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave the book of Acts to your servant Luke. We thank you, Lord, that these 2,000 years later, here we are opening these same words that are still with the power to change and transform us. Lord, we pray that even today we would leave here as disciples more in love with Jesus. Soften our hearts, remove every distraction. Lord, we pray that uh, we would hear, hear you and you alone this morning. I ask for your strength. I ask for your anointing. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of us, myself included, that the same spirit that you, which uh, gave these words uh, would now speak to us. And Lord, you would draw us deeper and deeper into our walk with you, and we would grow and bear much fruit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter himself had been saved by the amazing grace of Jesus. He had experienced the grace of being restored by Jesus after he had denied Jesus three times in those early morning hours before the crucifixion. Peter had been reassured by the grace of Jesus to feed his flock and to do the work of a shepherd. And beginning with his vision from the Lord in Joppa and then the outpouring of the spirit of salvation that came to Cornelius and his family there in Caesarea, Peter had come to see that any grace that he was given as a Jewish believer in Jesus was also being made available by God 
to the Gentile community, non-Jewish people. And as we'll see here in chapter 11, well beyond what took place in Caesarea. That grace is going to continue in all different directions, in new cities, and new circumstances. If you're taking notes, you see the title on the screen this morning, Grace Upon Grace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, who pastored there in London, he said, between here and heaven, every minute that the Christian lives will be a minute of grace. Every minute you've been alive today has been a minute of God's grace. Every second has been his amazing grace. Peter, the other apostles, all the believers and all the disciples made new in Jesus, they had been recipients of the grace of God. And yet, they were still learning the depth of God's grace. I've been saved for Nearly 29 years. It'll be 29 years this coming June. My wife and I got saved. Altar call, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, 29 years ago this June. And I find myself, and those of you that have been saved longer than me, I find myself still learning the breadth and the depth of God's grace. <laughs> Personally, I learn it as I study the Word of God. I can read passages that I've read a thousand times and I see more of the grace of God that I've never seen before in just one verse, in a single word. I see it in the lives of other people. I see it as I study church history. I see it in this church. I see it in your lives. I see it in my life. We're always learning more of the depth of God's grace. But as we look at chapter 11 this morning, I've divided these 30 verses, and we'll read the, uh, the remaining verses in a few minutes, but I've uh, divided these 30 verses into three sections. I don't always do that. Sometimes, most times, I just go through the passage verse by verse, which we'll do. But I did kind of name these sections because they're little different settings, three different scenes. So if you're taking notes, they'll go like this. The first one's gift of grace. The second is gathered by grace. So the first one, gift of grace. The second, gathered by grace. And the third, grace forgiving. So gift of grace, gathered by grace, grace forgiving. Because some people write faster than other people. That's why I reiterated it that way. You know, some of you are like, blue right through. You ever take notes and the person beside you is like, they got every single thing the professor said and you got like four words? <laughs> you're like, how did they do that? Their notebook is full and you've got like, you're like, I can't keep up, but how do you do that? You know, some people are just really good at it. But uh, if you're taking notes, this first uh, section, Gift of Grace, uh, starting here in verse 1, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea Heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Even before Peter had made his way back to Jerusalem, as it appears from the last verse of chapter 10, he stayed for a few more days in Caesarea, but uh, somehow, someway, before he even got back to Jerusalem, word had waited, made its way. Even before text, Twitter, Instagram, Lord knows Facebook, uh, but before all those things, word had a way of spreading. And word had already made it back to Jerusalem that Gentiles had received the word of God. As Peter finally gets back to Jerusalem, it's not the warmest of receptions for him. Mm -hmm. Instead of 
please tell us all that God has done. That would have been a natural response. Like, please tell us all the great things God has done. No, what he heard was, you went into the home of an uncircumcised man and ate with them? What were you thinking? This was the response of many of the Jewish people, perhaps most of them. I'm not going to say all of them, because I think there's probably a few that didn't respond, but the majority did. And they thought, Peter, you're supposed to be a holy apostle. You're supposed to be someone who's a Jewish man that's faithful to the law. You have corrupted yourself and the rest of us by going in and having a meal with a Gentile, uncircumcised man. But they don't fully understand that the grace of Jesus has now abolished the ceremonial law in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments have been abolished. The moral law holds firm. Amen? Amen. It's still a sin to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, to lie, to use God's name in vain. That has not changed. But the ceremonial laws, circumcision, washing your hands a certain way, uh, eating certain things, not eating certain things, those ceremonial laws were now covered by grace. In Romans chapter 10, there's two verses up on the screen. In Romans 10, 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now you've got to understand, Paul knew the law better than anybody. It's a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews. But he had come to realize that all the ceremonial laws had been nullified with the blood of Jesus. Now, uh, I remember I was traveling. Um, now, you, you still need Jesus and his sinless perfection because the law itself, uh, we can't even keep uh, any of it to perfection. Amen? Right, right. I mean, everybody here, even after you're saved, you've still told a lie. You've still gossiped. You've still done this. You've still done that. we violated the law. Jesus is the only one who kept to perfection the moral, and while he was actually on the earth, he actually kept the ceremonial as well, all the way to the cross. It comes after the resurrection that we're no longer under those things. So he kept the law to perfection, which is good news for the rest of us. But, uh, but keeping aspects of the law can't bring you into salvation. I was traveling uh, in my prior career, it was early 2000s, I was on a business trip, and I, was, uh, and I still I shared the Lord with lots of different people when I traveled. I got a chance to witness to people. I'd ask, I'd just ask questions, engage in conversations. And I had this waiter, it was me and a, another colleague, and I think my other colleague was not a believer, but uh, the waiter, I could tell by the things that were coming out of his mouth that he didn't know Jesus. <laughs> he, I think he might have used Jesus' name a few times, but not in any worship kind of way. Right. And uh, so, uh, and I could tell by his tattoos, they told a lot. And so I just engaged in a friendly conversation. And I said, so how is this particular, I, might, I think it was like a crab cake sandwich. He goes, oh, I'm Jewish, I don't eat shellfish. Uh-oh. And I was like, and I was thinking, this is the least of your problems. <laughs> um, right. As it relates to you and God someday. Right. 
Uh, you'll be able to say, God, good news, I never ate shellfish. And God says, bad news, here's all the things that you violated uh, that were just out and out violations of the Ten Commandments and every other moral law of God. But uh, so, again, we get conf- even the Jewish people that day, they were still confused as the ceremonial meant the same to them okay. as the actual moral laws which are in the Ten Commandments. And, and they're not the same. I mean, under uh, Christ, he's abolished. You don't have to be circumcised. You can eat lobster if you like lobster. But if you don't eat lobster, you're not holier than someone who did. Right. hope all that makes sense. And don't forget, Peter had essentially, he had the same mindset of these that are offended as the same mindset they did a few days earlier. So a few days earlier, Peter would have acted the exact same way. Uh, his thinking had to be corrected, and theirs is going to have to be corrected as well. So Peter begins to explain to them that, hey, going into a Gentile home was not even remotely Peter's plan. It was God's plan and God's command. Peter was like, Peter's like, listen, guys, I was on a rooftop just waiting for lunch. And then it all happened, right? Because I just was waiting for lunch. They were taking a long time to prepare lunch. I'm just waiting for lunch. And next thing I know, God has me meeting these Gentile men downstairs. Uh, Years ago, uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, right around when I was born. I was born in 69. So this was happening while I was in diapers and stuff. But, uh, but Pastor Chuck and uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and other churches in Southern California, not just Calvary Chapels, but other churches, and, and not just in Southern California, around the country, uh, there was this whole movement taking place. And you know, the Jesus Revolution movie, many of you went and saw it uh, earlier this year, but uh, at that time, called the Jesus Movement, uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and other churches, they began reaching out to hippies and college kids. They were coming out of Woodstock, and they were dropping acid, and they were just on drugs and, and living uh, all kinds of uh, lifestyles that obviously were immoral. But they were inviting them into the church. They would come in looking exactly the way they did at Woodstock. And not everybody was happy about it. Some people are like, they are defiling the church to even invite them in. I mean, obviously, they're not saved yet. You're inviting them in. And even when they first get saved, they don't immediately have the conviction to change every single thing about their behavior and how they look. And, and Pastor Chuck said they needed a bath and all that kind of stuff, right? So, but everyone was not happy about it. But God took a whole lot of people out of their comfort zone and what happened was thousands of people were saved and transformed. And without anyone beating over their head, many of them said, hey, you know, I need to kind of shed this and shed that and stop doing this because the Holy Spirit then comes in and starts to tell people how to operate, how to live, how to walk. Now back to our text uh, in verses 4 through 11. I'm not going to reread it because Peter basically retells exactly what we saw in chapter 10. So it's actually a restating of everything we read in chapter 10. So I don't want to reread it all this morning, but I'll kind of break it down. Now, Peter retells how he ended up in the household of Cornelius. Uh, Again, that he was waiting for lunch, but most significantly, he explains that it was the Lord that brought it all about, that he had no intention of leaving Joppa. He didn't even know he was supposed to leave Joppa until God comes to him. And his initial response when this vision comes, he comes in this, he's on the 
roof waiting for lunch, the trance, how he goes into, which is a vision. All of a sudden, God brings down on this sheet, and it's bound at the four corners. There's leopards and rats and uh, roaches and all kinds of stuff crawling on it. And God says, rise, kill, and eat. Because it says all kinds of creatures, even things that you would never think would be edible. And God says, rise, kill, and eat. And he did it three times. And Peter's response initially was, no way, Lord. None of, none of that unclean stuff, have, have, un, unclean foods have ever touched my lips. But God made it clear to Peter that whatever he calls clean, Peter cannot call unclean or common. And that means food, but more specifically, God was speaking of people. That you're going to meet people, and he goes, you're going to, they're not going to, they're, they're not going to be in any way, shape, or form ever raised under a Jewish culture, and you're not going to be able to call them unclean. That I love them, I sent my son to die for them, and so you have to understand that God is calling all people, and not just the Jewish ones that grew up under the law. Now, in verses 12 through 17, the Spirit told Peter to go to Caesarea doubting nothing. We tend to, this is really good, this is really helpful for me from God and to you in many, many ways that you may not always think about. As human beings, we tend to overthink lots of things. Would anyone agree with that? We tend to way overthink some things. Now, I, I agree that there's times people underthink, especially when you're like 16. Your parents are like, did you even think, right? <laughs> did you even give it 10 seconds of thought? 11 seconds of thought. Anything would have stopped you from doing X, Y, or Z, right? So I understand that there are times when we didn't think at all. But many times as believers, God will tell us to do something, and we will think of a thousand reasons why that's not safe, God did not call us to safety, by the way. He called us to faith. Uh, I have a message that I listened to called um, uh, recently um, pastoring in the next 10 years or something to that effect. And, and it was talking about just with courage. We're going to look at that in Joshua as well. But uh, many times God will give us a simple statement because he knows we will sit there and mull it over for years. So Peter, he tells him, Go and doubt nothing. That cuts out a lot of stuff because Peter might have said, well, why, was, why did Moses say this in the first place? Why did Joshua do this? Why in the world do we write the first books, the five books of the Bible, and I'm now supposed to not do any of this? I'm talking about the ceremonial part. Does this make sense? Because he's raised his whole life thinking you can't eat, you can't eat, you can't eat, and he says, rise, kill, and eat. And so he says, I want you to go and doubt nothing. And so God, for us... I believe he wants us to oftentimes simply hear his voice saying, go and do. Stop thinking about it from every single angle. Just serve me. And it really is helpful. There was time when uh, I mentioned the first service, we would go into um, the correctional facilities, and I might would be sitting across from someone, and I know for a fact they've committed very serious crimes. And in my heart, I don't really want to give them the gospel. I had a sister that was murdered, me and Montel. I mean, I, I, so, but here's, the Bible cuts out from under you the things that you feel like doing and says, go and give the gospel to every living creature. Mm -hmm. 
Guess who that includes? Every living creature. That really is helpful, right? Because then if you don't feel like giving them the gospel, God says, I didn't ask you if you feel like it. Are they living? Yes. Then give them the gospel. Amen. And then once you start to do that, all your feelings kind of fade anyway. Does that make sense? So you have, to, you have to just do what God says to do. So Peter says, or God says to Peter, just go and doubt nothing. And you're not going to understand everything about this sheet that came down. You're not going to understand it all. But go and you're going to know why. Uh, you're there. And as Peter tells him, uh, the Spirit tells Peter to go to Caesarea, doubting nothing. Uh, in verse, um, uh, which verse is it here? Uh, verse uh, 12, he takes six brethren with him. We talked about that last week, that Peter took some, uh, a small group of Jewish people with him. If he was going to enter the house, he was going to have some witnesses, and they were going to go with him, or they're going to be moral support, or whatever it may be. But as Peter entered the home, uh, as we talked about a week ago, he had never stepped foot in a Gentile home before. This is new territory for him. This is uh, something that was not comfortable for him. And he did so in spite of his reservations. And you and I are going to have to take steps of faith in spite of our reservations. We're going to always have reservations. By the way, if, if fear didn't exist, you would never need faith. Okay. Does this make sense? Okay. Fear is why you need faith. You would never need faith if there's no such thing as fear. You could operate like you were laying on a Caribbean island just sipping a drink for the rest of your life. But because fear exists, you will always need faith. Because uncertainty exists, you will always need faith. Because difficulty exists, you will always need to take steps of obedience and dependence on God. Does this make sense? The reason why you have all these headwinds is why you need God to help you move through them. So Peter goes forward in spite of his reservations. He knew that God had sent him. He knew why he was there, according to verse 14, that he would have the words to the household that they would be saved. He wasn't there to tell them how beautiful the city was. He wasn't there to uh, recommend uh, a good Jewish diet or anything like that. And, and again, there are pastors, sadly, in churches in America that are getting up, and that salvation never comes from their lips. And they're going to give an account that, of all the people they've led to hell because they didn't preach the gospel. But we're called to preach the whole counsel of God. And Peter was called to go there and give the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to give something kind of scratched their back, but to make sure that they got something that saved their soul. Amen. Amen. Verse 15, Peter conveys that while he was speaking, while he was speaking, the same spirit that sent Peter to that home, all of a sudden the spirit falls upon Cornelius, falls upon those that are gathered there in the same manner he said to us at the beginning. What does he mean by that? He's speaking of Pentecost. Way back in chapter 2, he said when the Spirit was first poured out upon them, when the church was baptized in the Spirit, and those men were individually baptized by the Spirit, uh, the Spirit fell upon them like Niagara Falls falling there in Jerusalem, and it fell the same way, albeit in a much smaller area, it fell the same way as far as just this mighty outpouring on that home of Cornelius and Caesarea. Now, this was not mentioned in chapter 10, but as the Spirit, what Peter says here, he, he recounts something here that was not stated anywhere in chapter 10, but Luke records it here. As the Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius, Peter remembered something that Jesus had said. Look what it says. He said in verse, um, in verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, 
that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He instantly knew, John instantly knew, he remembers uh, as he's seen what's taking place, he instantly knew that the Spirit was the one baptizing these believers. These newly saved souls. Mind you, they were being baptized by the Spirit before they were water baptized. That's not the normal progression. Usually, someone gets saved, then they get water baptized, then they later get baptized by the Holy Spirit. But, God can reverse, salvation always comes first. But God could reverse the order. Someone could get baptized by the Holy Spirit even before they get water baptized, or they could get water baptized before they're baptized by the Spirit. Um, God can change the order. Even Paul, we talked about this in the first service as well, Paul himself, he said he was born as one, uh, born out of time. Because the other 11 apostles, they all walked with Jesus for three years. Paul wasn't even around at that time. He wasn't saved. So he had, they could have said, well, how could he be an apostle? He didn't walk with Jesus for three years. But remember, he went off to Arabia for three years. And we believe that he was personally discipled by the Lord Jesus himself. So he had his own uh, God made sure that he met the same requirements as the other 11. But God can do anything he wants to do. Amen? And if he says, I want to baptize them by the Spirit, then water, he can do that. It's not, there's exceptions to every rule. But notice the doctrine doesn't change. It's still salvation, it's still the Spirit, and it's still water baptism. So even if the order changed, the doctrine is identical. Does that make sense? So God can change the order of things sometimes. Uh, and he may do that, but um, usually it's uh, in the order that uh, is salvation, water baptism, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the way it was with Billy Graham. That's the way it was with D.L. Moody. That's the way it was with most uh, as well. And the apostles themselves were that way. Uh, but uh, he sees the Spirit uh, uh, come upon them, and he remembers that uh, up in the upper room, Jesus had told uh, Peter and the other apostles, that the Spirit, who he also called the Helper, would bring things to what? Remembrance. Right, right. That they would, oh, he said that, now we see it happening. Where we see it happening, now we remember that he actually said that. And it's in John 14, 6. We covered this uh, last year when we were in the book of John. And Jesus said that night, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, so he tells us right there that the Helper is the Holy Spirit. They're just synonym names of the Spirit. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. In other words, Jesus said he's not been sent yet. Remember, Jesus breathed on them the Spirit, and then later baptized them in the Spirit. But he says, the Father will send, because he had not sent the Spirit yet. He will send him in my name, and he will teach you all things and bring remembrance to you all things that I said. So then Peter remembers, oh yeah, he said that when he baptizes um, that John indeed baptized with water. John would actually dip people in the Jordan River, but that Jesus had said that there will come a time when people will be baptized in the Spirit. And right here, Peter remembered that the Lord had done that. We're not even sure, um, again, uh, how many times he remembered these kind of things, but uh, this one's recorded for us. Now, verse 17 is a clinching verse. Uh, verse 17, If therefore God gave them the same gift... As he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand God? Peter's defense of what he had witnessed and what God did in sending him into that home and the grace 
and the spirit that was poured out on that home and on the souls in that home, uh, Peter's saying, look, if God gave them the gift of salvation, and he did, and God gave them the gift of the spirit, which he did, both the seal of the spirit and the overflow or the baptism, the uh, immersion of the spirit, which he did, Peter's like, then how in the world could little old me say, uh, no, we can't have this happen? And he couldn't stop it even if he wanted to say no. Right. In Ephesians 2.8, it spells out for us what the gift is. And many of you should be familiar with this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So Peter's saying the gift that they received was salvation and the indwelling of the Spirit and they even received the immersion of the Spirit. All in one gift. It, it was like one of those uh, Fabergé eggs or something. It was like the gift inside the gift inside the gift, right? So it was all contained in one salvation, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit all at one time. Uh, they received this gift from God. But Peter concludes, if they were being saved and believing just as we're, we were, and they were given salvation, how in the world could I possibly resist God? You guys are contending with me. You're giving me a hard time. What would you have done? If you knew it was God, what are you going to tell God? No? That's a good question. And Peter stopped speaking. Because it says in verse 18, so Peter just zipped his lips and said, all right, you guys noodle on this, that you're giving me a hard time about going in there. What would you have done if you knew for a fact it was God? And you remembered that the Holy Spirit was the one baptizing them. When they heard these things, they became silent. Everybody was like, we flunked the test. All of us are like, hold on, if it was God, who do we really have a problem with here? Not Peter. If God did it, who is our issue with? Their issues with God. And then they start to feel a little convicted, like, we weren't quite as spiritual as we thought we were, Peter. Perhaps you did the right thing. Perhaps it was a good idea for you to go in and uh, preach to those Gentiles and have a meal with them. And so they started to realize uh, if it was God, then... They, they, they understood at this point that when Peter's, his thinking had to be changed. And now in obedience, theirs is changing as well. And they do a 180, because you look at the rest of the verse. They became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to repentance, or, uh, granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Uh, they go from, how in the world could you do this, to, well, look at God, right? Uh, uh, look at this. Uh, you Lo and behold, Peter, you were on the right side of this all along. Uh, we were just testing you. We were just making sure you knew what you were doing. They do a total 180, and they're like, look at the grace of God, and they fully realize that repentance and forgiveness is available to everyone, no matter what they've done in their past. This is great news, because you're going to meet people. We have people in America today that are making changes to their body. They'll never be able to change again, but God can still change their soul. Amen. They'll never be able to change some of these things after this, but God can still change them from the inside out. And so this is good news no matter what a person has done or what they're into, uh, what, they, what their belief system is. And now while all this is taking place and, and while God has done this great work in Caesarea and now this eye-opening testimony from Peter is taking place in Jerusalem, meanwhile God was drawing Gentiles in other places that the apostles didn't even know was happening. Isn't that really cool? Turn with me to the next section, starting with verse, uh, verse 19. This se next section, 
Starting in verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but to the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. A great, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, all with, per all with that purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. If you're taking notes, this second section, this little uh, change in scene, if you will, I've titled Gathered by Grace. Luke turns his attention now from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, and what the Lord was doing nearly 400 miles to the north that, that the apostles weren't even aware was happening. Aren't you glad that God is doing things around this world right now that you and I have not, no idea about? There are things happening in Madagascar, North Korea, Siberia, South America, Central America, the Pacific Island. God is speaking to people, reaching people that you and I have nothing to do with it. We haven't even thought of these individuals or even the language or the culture, and God is thinking, isn't that great to know? So that God was doing this work 400 miles, or nearly 400 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, Peter had just returned uh, to Jerusalem from Caesarea, so I'm going to put a map back up, which uh, you guys know I love maps. I haven't put one up in a while. It's time for another map. So, um, so they're not just in the back of your Bible for no reason. Uh, here's what's going on. Uh, Peter had come back from Caesarea, so if you look on, if you look on the map there, Caesarea is in the red box over here. So you see Caesarea, and he came back from Caesarea, which is uh, moving southeast back to Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem testifying of why he went to Caesarea or why he went into Cornelius's house, and then sometime after he makes his defense. And everybody comes to realize this was the Lord. God did this while they continued to then uh, worship and serve together there in Jerusalem. After he gives the defense of the outpouring, word comes to Jerusalem from Antioch. Well, where is Antioch? Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. It's in the green box here. You guys see that? There's Antioch. Um, so Antioch is in southern Turkey today. This, if you look at a map of Turkey, it has this one little tiny little uh, peninsula-looking thing. It's not a peninsula because it's actually land, but it looks like this little dip down, and right there on the southernmost part of Turkey is where ancient Antioch was. And word had come from Antioch all the way down to Jerusalem uh, that God was doing a great work in Antioch, and the apostles had never been there. Uh, they had never sent anyone there, so they're not even sure how this was taking place. It wasn't their doing. Uh, but this was, uh, by the way, this uh, city today, it's not called Antioch, it's uh, Antakya, Turkey. It's a much smaller city today, it's only a few thousand people. Uh, but at this point in the first century, um, Antioch, uh, also known as Syrian Antioch, so the, the one in the green box, there's another Antioch, uh, 
uh, that Paul will later go to, which is up here in central Turkey today. That's the other Antioch that Paul will later go to. He's still called Saul here, but he'll later be called Paul. He'll later go to that Antioch as well. But this one, the one in the green box, is Syrian Antioch, uh, which is, distinguishes it from Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch, the one in the central Turkey area. And uh, Syrian Antioch, though, was the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. The only cities larger than Antioch was Rome and Alexandria, which is down in Egypt. So Rome and Alexandria were the two largest, and then uh, Syrian Antioch was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Um, about a half million people lived in Antioch, and like I said, only a few thousand lived there today. Uh, it was a city that was a center of business and commerce and pleasures and pagan religion. It had, it had everything. It's like New York City, the, the city that never sleeps, right? That was Antioch. It had all you had to offer and more. Now, back to verses 19 and 20, it says, now those, now what, those who were scattered after the persecution that rose after Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Phoenicia and Cyprus, you can see Cyprus is the island right off the coast of Lebanon today. It's Lebanon. Back then it was Phoenicia. But Cyprus is that little island right there, right off the coast of Lebanon. Uh, but Lebanon back then was called Phoenicia. And you had Tyre and Sidon, so that was all uh, Phoenicia, going back to the ancient Phoenician uh, civilization that was there. Uh, so some of the people, when they scattered, remember that Philip, he went to Samaria. And we know some believers made it to Damascus. How do we know that? Because Saul was there to drag them back from Damascus. So Damascus was over in Syria, like going northeast. And uh, then some went straight north. Some went in different directions. This doesn't everywhere that they went. This is just Luke speaking on just this specific region. No doubt they went south and other places as well. But some made it to Phoenicia and some made it all the way to Antioch. And that's what uh, he's picking up with. And then uh, when they get to Antioch... Um, it turns out that uh, some of the ones that went there, they would only originally speak to Jewish people. They would go to the Jewish communities, they would go to the synagogues, they would go to Jewish, maybe have, break bread with their Jewish families. And while they would do that, they would tell them about Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what we've come to follow. And he, he was sent by God. He was born of a virgin. And they would tell it, but they would only tell it to the Jewish community. They didn't reach out to the Gentiles at all. Whether they went to Phoenicia, whether they went to Antioch, uh, whether they went to Cyprus, they would only... Uh, share with the Jewish community. Um, but eventually, some men that were originally from Cyprus, which is the island off Lebanon there, and Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? Modern-day Libya. So you had right here is Cyrene on the north coast of Africa, facing Europe. So Cyrene is modern-day Libya. You realize how many countries are in the news that were already part of God's plan way back then? So you have Libyans and Cyprians, and they went to Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey. These are all countries that are uh, in, our, uh, in our news today, and some in varying degrees. Uh, but they went there, and these men, we do believe that the, the men of Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya or Cyprus, that they were Jewish, but they had been raised in Gentile ways. They were Gentile cultures. They had been raised in Gentile communities. There was not a prominent... Uh, Jewish community or synagogue, so they were raised. Paul, Paul himself, Saul, was raised in Tarsus, which was predominantly a Gentile city, 
although it had a bigger Jewish enclave and he was raised strictly Jewish, but we don't believe all the others were. Many of them were raised in much more Greco. Some of them didn't even speak Hebrew originally. They only spoke Greek, for example, and they later had to learn Hebrew if they wanted to minister within the Hebrew community. So, but these men had come from Cyprus, and they'd come from Cyrene, and they were very familiar with the Gentile cultures, and they just decide, you know what? Why don't we share Jesus with not just Jewish people? Why don't we share it with Gentile people? That's where we came from. That's what we know. That's our background. And they begin to do that. And the result, in verse 21, is that the hand of the Lord was upon them. The hand of the Lord was with them, it actually says. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and this refers to the power of God. By the way, when you see the hand of the Lord in the Bible, it can be a really good thing, like the favor of God, or it can be a, and the hand of the Lord came upon, and it can be wipe out an entire city or something with judgment. So the hand of the Lord is something that you want to be under his hand, but not his hand coming against you. Uh, that's just uh, something that our country needs to understand. Uh, but in the city of Antioch, it's known for its business, it's known for its commerce. They had gladiator sports, they had entertainment, they had arts, they had sophistication, they had science. Uh, they, it was world-renowned for its immorality. The prostitution was heavy uh, in the city of Antioch, the sinful pleasures. Matter of fact, Rome adopted some of its things directly from Antioch, some of the things that took place in Rome. And so, uh, but in this city that was, you know, tonight the Super Bowl will be played in, it's not my words, I've heard many people call Vegas Sin City. And tonight it'll be played in Sin City. Well, Antioch was a Sin City. Rome was a Sin City. But in Antioch, isn't it amazing? Many started turning the Lord. And I think what's cool about this is once people have had their fill of sin, they realize they still can't find peace. Amen. Amen. I mean, way back when, in the Jesus, I guess maybe a little later, the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh -huh. You know, remember that? Uh -huh. uh, some of you kids are like, what's that? Uh, but <laughs> you still can't get satisfaction from, I mean, you can get a temporary pleasure, right. but there's no filling, there's no peace, yeah. there's nothing substantive you need more and more. And that's why people go from starter drugs to full-on addiction, right? Mm -hmm. Because nothing really satisfies. And so many in Antioch, they had had their fill of so many things, and the gospel made sense, and they many turned to the Lord. In verse 22, now news made its way back to Jerusalem into the ears of the apostles. And the apostles decide, let's send Barnabas to check out this. We've heard what's going on in Antioch. We had nothing to do with it. There's another one of these things that God is just doing. Let's send Barnabas to this rapidly expanding body of believers to no doubt uh, teach them to affirm scriptural truth, but also to support the work that had been started there to help them and, and to equip them and to build up uh, leaders and teachers. Now, choosing Barnabas uh, was probably based on at least two reasons. I put two up on the screen. I'm sure there's more. Uh, but Barnabas, number one, he grew up in a Gentile environment. He himself was from... Cyprus. Remember, some of the men that started were from Cyprus and Cyrene. He himself was also Cyprian. He was from Cyprus. Barnabas was Jewish, but he grew up much more like a Gentile in most respects. He grew up in Cyprus, uh, and he would have a lot in common with some of the men that started this church that were also from Cyprus and Cyrene. Number two, Barnabas had the gift of encouragement. Yeah. Barnabas made anybody feel welcome to the family of God. Anyone get saved, Barnabas was the kind of guy that would make anyone feel welcome. He was the one that introduced Saul when no one would touch Saul with a 10-foot pole. They were all petrified. Barnabas, he was 
not only compassionate, but a bit fearless. And he goes and brings Saul in when everybody else was suspect of him. He had that gift of encouragement. And his authenticity and his sincerity was evident to everybody. And by the way, you can't fake genuine, can you? If you really are sincere, people will know it. If you're faking it, they're going to know you're faking it. Um, I try and explain this to our politicians. Uh, But anyway, they don't listen. We know when you're faking it, you know. Uh, But anyway, back to verse 23. Um, It tells us that when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them uh, with purpose that they should continue with the Lord. When Barnabas gets to Antioch, Luke puts it this way, he had seen the grace of God, which is probably why we have the title this morning, Grace Upon Grace. Uh, he had seen the grace of God. He saw grace, and I put up a scriptural definition of it on the screen. Grace is that undeserved, that unmerited favor of God. It's the kindness of God. It's the forgiveness of God. It is the just goodness of God in our life. All of it undeserved, but he had seen that God had poured out all of this undeserved favor upon people that were coming out of the sins of Antioch and into uh, a relationship with Jesus, their Savior. They were coming out of their former deceptions, their former sins, their self-righteousness. We've got people in this church, by the way, that got saved in Las Vegas. And there's some really strong churches in Vegas. And, and so the biggest thing happening in Vegas today is not the Super Bowl. If one person comes to Jesus in Las Vegas, that will be the biggest thing to happen in that city today. Amen? That will be the biggest thing to happen. Not, God could not, I'm here to tell you, he does not care who wins this game tonight. Uh, but if people come to Jesus. And so uh, here in this city, uh, Barnabas was seeing what God was doing. And he just saw the grace of God being poured out. And Understand that no apostle, again, had ever been there. Barnum's like, man, this is amazing. Not Peter hadn't been here. John hadn't been here. And the Spirit of God, via the grace of God, is the one that had gathered this group of believers. And probably an eclectic mix, because Antioch is quite the melting pot of cities, much like Rome was, much like Alexandria. And by the way, we have no way of knowing this, but you get the sense, at least I get the sense, that Barnabas was never one of those who were offended by Peter going into Cornelius. I don't think Barnabas was one of the ones. When Peter got there, I don't think Barnabas was the first to say, what were you doing in Cornelius' house? I think Barnabas was trying to talk sense into the rest of them, like, why are you all bent out of shape about this? You know, um, if he saved Saul, why wouldn't anybody be a candidate? You know, that kind of thing. But, right, right. but okay. we see that Barnabas, he's ecstatic about the changed lives there in Antioch. He never once says... Why are you all doing this? Uh, Who gave you this power, authority? None of that stuff. He's just excited about the grace of God being poured out. And as you'll recall, back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, that's the very first time Barnabas' name is ever mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 36. And his name means, and it says it right there in the fourth chapter, his name means son of encouragement. He's living up to his name, isn't he? His son of encouragement. Uh, We will always see him Everywhere you see him in the book of Acts, we always see him being an encouragement, which is to impart courage to people, which is to, um, to give, uh, to give um, joy, to build up the faith, all of these things. And he encourages the believers to continue walking in and with the Lord. And some people, when they enter a room, they deflate the room. And you're like... All the energy just left. Other people, 
They bring the joy of the Lord. They bring an encouragement. They build people up. And all of us can be a Barnabas. Amen? Well, that's not my personality. The Holy Spirit can change your personality. Can make you more of an encourager, a builder-upper, if that's a word, uh, a joy-giver instead of a joy-robber. Um, Luke's commentary on Barnabas in verse 24, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Don't you want that testimony, but man or woman, a good woman, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. That's a great testimony to have. He had a godly, joyful impact wherever he went. And as he ministers, he becomes the pastor there at Antioch. Many more come to faith because it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the Barnabas brings uh, a force multiplier. He begins teaching and preaching, and even more people say, you got to come. Uh, Barnabas is teaching this weekend, and the more people start coming to Christ, and he, uh, he's added to the work that's already taking place there. Um, now, verse 25, uh, let's look at this last section this morning. Uh, the work grows beyond Barnabas' capacity. Uh, it's clear that the Spirit of God puts it into his mind uh, to go and find Saul. Let's look at it. Then Barnabas departs for Tarsus and seeks Saul, and he finds him. He brings him to Antioch. Uh, and it goes on to say that many are discipled, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Um, as, it, uh, as it begins to grow, the ministry outgrows Barnabas's bandwidth and some of the others there, and he, he re remembers, and I'm sure that the Spirit of God recalled, hey, Saul... It's less than 150 miles away. You just go a little bit north and a little bit west, and you get to Tarsus. You saw it on the map. It was almost straight across. You could actually take a boat this way or up and over, uh, both there in that southern part of Turkey. And he remembers that Saul is in Tarsus. Um, we haven't seen Saul for about a decade. God has had him in a cocoon, kind of like a butterfly waiting to come out of the cocoon, just growing him there. For about a decade, all by himself, um, well, not by himself, but at least away from the primary uh, church there in Jerusalem. And he goes and finds Saul, and he convinces him by the Spirit to come with him back to Antioch. And they both come back, and they become co-pastors, for, uh, for, if you will, and they begin to teach and preach together for a full year, and they make many disciples together, the two of them uh, taking turns and, and working together. Uh, two by two, if you will, many are discipled. And then it's the first time that the believers are called Christians, which was not of a term of endearment at that time. It was actually a term of disdain, a bit of mocking. They were called the company of Christ. That's what the world there in Antioch said, hey, that's the company of Christ. A little bit of company, they, that's their own little thing, their little cult or whatever you want to call them. Uh, Jesus freaks, whatever, you know, things like that. It wasn't really uh, an endearing term, but that's what they were called. And it brings us to our last section. Pick it up with me in verse 27. We'll read these, read these last three verses. And in these days, prophets came um, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. If you're taking notes, this last section, um, very short, three verses, this last section, grace forgiving. While Barnabas and Saul were still co-leading the church there in Antioch, 
some men come up from Jerusalem. Um, again, Jerusalem, where the apostles were, they probably sent from time to time, for lack of a better guest speakers, or to come up and see the work. Hey, go help Saul and Barnabas out. And they send some men up, and some of them with the gift of prophecy come up and speak. And one of them, his name is Agabus. You'll see him elsewhere in the book of Acts. Uh, he is shown by the Holy Spirit. No one knew, but he is told in advance before a famine ever comes. It would be helpful if someone would tell us in this country what's coming. Uh, and, say, and like know it for fact, because like, then you would just really know, all right, I need to do this and this. But we don't know that. But there, Agabus did. He said, a famine's going to come. It's going to hit the entire Roman Empire. And there's going to be food is going to be very, very short supply. People are going to starve to death. Many are going to die. Uh, but the Holy Spirit tells him that this famine is coming upon the whole Roman Empire. And it even tells us in the days of Claudius Caesar. Uh, the book of Acts is very historically accurate. Uh, at this time, Claudius Caesar is the emperor in Rome. And this is, by the way, when Rome began to do its first invasion of the British Isles and began to push up into what is today Great Britain. That was when it started under Claudius Caesar, when they started to come up across from Gaul, which is France today, over to the British Isles and push up. Uh, so we know that uh, under the rule of him, these things did take place and this famine comes. Uh, but obviously, God has done a great work in many of the lives of those in Antioch. And they don't hear famine and begin to hoard all their possessions, say, if there's a famine, everybody for yourself. No, God's done a great work in them. They become a lot like Barnabas. They're showing faith, compassion, and they say, hey, we should send something to Jerusalem and help the church out there. That's not as rich a city as Antioch. Antioch's a much richer city in a lot of respects, and so uh, you can see the fingertips of Barnabas on this body of believers. Barnabas, in gratitude to the grace of God, he gave his life savings, everything he had. Remember, he sold his entire, everything he owned in Cyprus and put it all at the apostles' feet, all of it. I don't think anyone in this room has ever given every single thing they own and gave it all to God. But he did. He did that. Uh, he set an incredible example. He helped many people in the early church. He helped many believers. He actually had a fortune that he sold the whole thing, gave it to the Lord. He was such a joyful giver because of all Jesus had done for him, and he just had that desire to give it back. Henry Drummond said this, he said, the most obvious lesson in Christ's teaching is that there is no happiness in having or getting anything, but only in giving. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. Now a lot of people can quote that verse, but can't live that verse. It's more blessed to give than receive. And I, I want to become more of a gracious giver in the remaining years of my life than, than, than I am today. I want to become more open-handed. And God, uh, you know, just puts it on their heart without any prompting from the disciples, without any prompting, it doesn't appear there's any prompting from Barnabas or Saul. The people, the believers, the disciples there in Antioch, they decide they want to send relief from their own finances, not worried about themselves. They said, we want to help the believers down in Judea, down in Jerusalem, and they want to send finances and help and food to people they've never even met. Uh, John Samara, who uh, runs Ananias' house, um, he, when he tells a story about how when they had these poor believers in Syria, in the middle of the war with ISIS, they took off their jewelry and put it 
in offering plates says, please send it to those in Africa that need it. Unbelievable. You know, out of their need, not out of their excess. And so we see that here as well. In Psalm 41, verse 1, uh, the psalmist writes, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. The best way to protect yourself is to not try and protect yourself. Say, let God be your provider and don't be open-handed, open-hearted. God takes care of the gracious givers. He really does. He takes care of his own. But they were truly thankful for the impact of the elders. They want to send this to the elders there at the church. They were thankful for men like Barnabas that had been sent to them. They were thankful they had received spiritual food. So they wanted to give back physical food as best they could. But they were uh, even more thankful for the grace that they had been given, which caused them to be gracious givers. And so for us, they're here today, here we are 2,000 years later, we've received the same grace. We've received the same salvation, the same seal of the Spirit, the same work of the Spirit in our life, and the same grace. As we receive grace, are we willing to give grace to be a Barnabas, to be the gracious givers that we see there in Antioch? I pray that we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that your word instructs us and it teaches us. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those that not only are just recipients of grace, but givers of grace. And with grace comes truth, Lord, that we would be uh, receiving the power to speak truth in a time that we live in a society that doesn't like truth. But Lord, we would graciously give truth, but we'd also graciously give of what you've given us, whether it's our time, our talent, and our treasure. Lord, there's nothing we want to withhold from you But like Paul, like Barnabas, we want to be poured out like a drink offering. We ask these things and the help of the Spirit to accomplish them in us. For, Lord, we could not do it without your help. But we want to be willing, and, Lord, that you would bring it about as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.